From the Exploratorium in San Francisco, this is Small Talk. We're taking a survey today at the Exploratorium. Um, given the threat of global warming, how do you think people in the future will power their homes? Well, I hope that we get the energy for our homes from sources that already exist and are renewable, like solar and wind energy and tidal energy. And why do you think that more people don't already use solar energy to power their homes? Uh, it's it's price prohibitive. I mean, it, your house is already wired to the electric company, and it's easy to just pay that bill each month because you flip a switch and it's there. This is the April edition of Small Talk. Sure, we'd like to get off the grid and get our power from the sun. But for most of us, it's just too expensive. Today, we'll hear how nanotechnology might be used to make solar panels cheaper. A great thing, yes? Well, we'll also look at some ethical issues that crop up when we try to improve our lives through nanotechnology. Hi, I'm Stephanie Chastine, and I'm a physicist at the Exploratorium, the Museum of Science, Art, and Human Perception. And I'm Karen Schmidt. I'm a science journalist. Each month we get together to have little conversations about little things. We find interesting people to chat with who are working in nanotechnology. People who, for instance, make things as small as an atom. We've been unwittingly making nano-sized particles for hundreds of years. They're in the colored materials used in cathedral stained glass windows and in the smoke emitted when we burn coal and other fossil fuels. But now scientists have much more control over things this small, and that's leading to a lot of exciting new technology. Please call our comment line at 1-888-781-3202. Come join us for some small talk. Because fossil fuels are the source of so many problems, alternative energy sources like solar and wind and geothermal energy are looking pretty attractive. Photovoltaic solar energy is a charming gift of physics. You shine light on a couple of pieces of silicon and you get an electric current. So why don't we use photovoltaics to make more than 0.1% of our nation's energy? Well, I drove across the bay to the University of California at Berkeley to chat with Dr. Jeff Grossman. Jeff is head of the Computational Nanoscience Group at UC Berkeley, and he's also the executive director of a National Science Foundation Nanoscience Center there. He builds a new kind of photovoltaic cell, one using nanotechnology. He says he's a real klutz in the lab, so he actually builds them on his computer, modeling them to see how they might work. He hopes these new solar cells could be more widely used than the current ones are. I asked Jeff how nanophotovoltaics might be better than those that we have now. The reason why you don't see a solar cell on top of every single roof in every city and every building is that they're too expensive to do that. And so what my research is involved in is trying to find new materials that would cost a lot less um, to make, but that would still convert uh, sunlight into energy efficiently. And so it's really the cost that lies at the heart here of, of the problem. 
and and bringing the cost down by even a factor of two would make a big difference. So what is it about about these particular type of cells that makes them cheaper? What kinds of materials go in, in them, or, or how are they made? Well, in traditional solar cells, the ones that you can buy today, uh, usually they're made out of silicon or polycrystalline silicon. And you need to make it very pure so that when the sun... Uh, uh, converts into electrons that those electrons, which are what cause the electricity, don't uh, uh, don't disappear or don't don't run into defects in the material. Now, in the nanoscale world, you can make interfaces and boundaries at this size scale that allow you to efficiently capture this electron without letting it it uh, hit a trap or a defect. And so, what that means is that you don't need the material to be as pristine or is pure for such a large uh, distance. And that's a lot cheaper to do. It's sort of like the diamonds, right? The world of diamonds. You can get um, a whole lot of very small uh, diamonds for not too much money. And the small ones can be quite good in quality. But if you want that same amount of one really big diamond that's all really good the whole way through, that's, that's very, very expensive. And so in the same way, you can make a lot of little things um, that come together and form a solar cell much more cheaply than you can make one pure big thing. What actually? What materials are we actually talking about here that you put into, uh, well, not you, but the experimentalists who, yes. who make these? Well, I put, put them in into the computer now, um, but uh, the, the people actually can, can make something they can touch. Is, uh, it's actually, they're, they're, it's pretty much uh, wide open right now. It's, it's, we're, we're trying everything we can. Um, but the, the kinds of materials fall into different classes. And one class would be the class of, of blended structures where you take a polymer, which is these sort of chains, carbon-based chains. Um, plastics that we Plastics, use. yeah. They form plastics and many other useful things. And it turns out that some polymers can absorb light. And when you blend the polymer with a nanoparticle, like a quantum dot... And what's a quantum dot? A quantum dot is a very small number of uh, atoms that come together and form a, a particle that has different properties than the bulk or than the same material, but a lot of atoms of that material. So then the polymers do the job of absorbing the light, and you mix them with these quantum dots that have these really interesting properties. Um, are there other materials other than the quantum dots that you mix together with the polymers to make solar cells? Fullerenes, which is 60 carbon atoms that look like a soccer ball, can be blended with polymers as well, uh, nanotubes, and many other kinds of nanostructures. And it turns out that these blends um, give you just the right mix of, uh, of, of kinds of material that, uh, that lets you efficiently convert sunlight to electricity. That's one class of a nanoscale solar cell. And um, and because you can, there's a lot of flexibility in what you use for the polymer, and as, as you can see from just a few examples I've given, in what you use for the nanoparticle, the the material that uh, the material choices is is very broad right now. Let's talk a little bit about your work uh, doing the computations. So, okay. what sorts of computations are you doing? What what is the usefulness of doing a simulation as opposed to just going out and doing the experiment and seeing what you get? Well, that's a great question. And um, it turns out that with nanoparticles and nanotechnology and nanoscience in particular, um, it, it's, the, the experiments are a little bit more challenging because it's hard to see what you're doing. 
So uh, we have to use very expensive microscopes to look at what we're making, and very often it's hard to even see uh, what you're making while you're making it. You have to wait until afterwards. Um, so what computers do is they give you that, that, those eyes, in a sense, so that you can take a, a system and model it, and then you can use those same models in that same computer simulation to try to optimize the material and make it sort of behave in the way that you want. So in the world of photovoltaics, that would mean making it uh, better at converting sunlight into energy, into electricity. It saves time um, by providing insights into directions to go before you actually go into this in, into the laboratory and try to make it. I'd like to get a little bit more detail about the actual work that uh, you do, the particular cells that you model. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me an example of some of the particular materials that are going into one of the cells that you model and what you've uh, been looking at? Sure. So uh, one of the best performing nanomaterial solar cells so far is uh, is a blend of fullerenes with uh, a certain polymer called, P- I'll just call it P3HT. And uh, it turns out that when you blend uh, carbon fullerenes with that polymer, you get efficiencies as high as 6% lately. Now, that's not as high as the traditional cells, but research on this particular material has only been going on for a few years now. And so we expect that um, the efficiency will only improve. And so what we're doing in, in the simulations is to try to understand why this particular blend is better than other blends. And, uh, and it turns out that we find that the interface between the, the fullerene and the polymer is where all the action is. And so uh, what you want at an interface is uh, to, to have a very specific way that the electrons and the holes in the material can travel across the interface. And so with the computers, we can predict that. And you, you mentioned an electron and a hole. Uh, it seems to be I a, sort of snuck that in. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems to be an important idea in, right. in these particular materials. Right. Um, could you just explain that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. Basically, in, in solar cells, what you're doing is you're taking sunlight, which uh, consists of particles called photons, and you're turning that kind of energy into electrons. And then those electrons are what give you electricity. Now, there are two steps two sort of very basic steps uh, to that process. First, you have to convert the photon into an electron-hole pair. So what happens is the photon gets absorbed by the material, and it excites an electron that's in the material already. When that electron gets excited, it leaves behind what's called a hole, which is really just a positively charged particle. Sort of like a bubble. Kind of like that, like a bubble. And a bubble of charge, if you want, that's bound together. So you have this electron that's sort of bound to the hole that it left behind. And that actually is called an exciton. And what happens is that the next step has to be the splitting of this exciton. You have to split the electron and the hole and separate them and take the electron out on one side of the material and the hole out on the other. If you can do that, then you have converted that photon into a usable electron and usable electricity. So it sounds then like making new devices to convert sunlight into electricity should be even easier now that we've got control of materials uh, on the nanoscale level. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, I would like to add, actually, that 
nanoscience and nanotechnology being kind of a new uh, field and a new area of research is getting a lot of attention, and I think uh, that's good. But, of course, with that comes uh, also some hype. And, uh, of course, you know, a lot of research needs to be done before these, these ideas become realities. I think there's also, so I think there's some hype around the benefits. I think there also is a lot of hype around uh, the possible uh, negative impact of nanotechnology. And I think, I think people are, are taking things very seriously as they should. Well, um, thank you very much for talking with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. There are a few other types of photovoltaic cells that use nanotechnology other than the ones that Jeff talked about, including ones that mimic the process of photosynthesis. Nanotechnology is also being used to improve other energy technologies, such as hydrogen fuel cells. In some way or another, nanotechnology is likely to play a role in generating affordable and clean energy. But will the benefits of nanoenergy technologies reach those who need them most? Dr. Patrick Lynn is the director of the Nanoethics Group, a nonpartisan think tank, and also affiliated with Western Michigan University and Dartmouth College. In this month's perspective, Patrick shares his view that we're still in the dark when it comes to bridging the widening technology gap between the rich and the poor. Hi, I'm Patrick Lynn, and I'm a philosopher by training. But I've been involved with science and technology from a very early age. I was looking more into nanotechnology several years ago, and it became clear that this was a perfect storm of science colliding with public policy and ethics, which is why it's important to promote dialogue on nanoethics, especially since we've seen how ignoring ethical and social issues related to genetically modified foods can be disastrous to the biotech industry. So today, I'd like to talk a bit about nanotechnology's critical role in creating cheaper, ubiquitous energy. Now, this doesn't sound socially or ethically problematic, as opposed to, say, creating nanodevices that intrude on privacy or nanodevices that can be used as weapons. Nonetheless, there are some moral issues related to energy that we ought to consider. First, why nanotech and energy? Well, a panel of 63 international experts assembled by the University of Toronto's Joint Center for Bioethics overwhelmingly agree that this is the number one field in which nanotech can most help developing countries. An alternative, more efficient energy was the number one story in Discover Magazine's Top 100 Science Stories in 2006. So energy is a very important area of research by all accounts. We take energy, and especially electricity, for granted here in the U.S. But according to the International Energy Agency, approximately 1.6 billion people, or 25% of the world's population, have no access to electricity. This means, for example, that they have no refrigeration to keep foods and medicines fresh, and no electric lights to work and read at night. For these and other reasons, energy is essential for lifting people out of poverty and raising their life expectancy. So here's the first ethical issue I want to pose. Are we morally obligated to use nanotechnology to help people in those developing regions, especially since they desperately need affordable and clean energy? Well, here's another way to look at it. The U.S. government has called nanotechnology the next industrial revolution, meaning that it will help humanity take a quantum leap for the better. But how well are we living up to that promise? If you believe that people in the developing world have a right to energy and to the nanotechnologies that make it affordable and clean, well, then it might be a tough uphill battle to convince the American public of that. If we provide countries with nanosolar cells, for example, we are essentially giving away the products of very expensive research for free. 
That's usually not a very good business model and may also explain why vaccines or treatments for HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, and other diseases are still working their way into developing countries right now, even though they've been around for years. Even simple and inexpensive technologies such as water filters, solar ovens, and biomass fuels often don't reach the poor people who need them. One reason is that humanitarian assistance typically takes a backseat to commercial and military interests. Consider that last year's federal funding for nanotechnology research totaled about $1 billion, with more than a third going to the Department of Defense. In contrast, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, received a total budget of only $9 million or so for all its work in economic development across the globe, energy being just one small part. So it may take some time before nanotechnology's benefits trickle down to developing countries. In the meantime, we can expect the technology gap to grow, which is a divide between those who can and cannot afford new technologies and the benefits. This gap exists between countries as well as between regions in the same country. For example, people in many of our own inner cities lack internet access, unlike people in the suburbs. It's important that we close this technology gap, not just because it might be morally offensive, but also because it increases economic and political instability, which can lead to riots, global war, mass migration, and even terrorism, disasters that we all ultimately pay for. So here's the challenge. Let's be mindful of our responsibilities to our fellow man, especially as nanotechnology gives us new power. Let's ensure that people will have access to the world-changing benefits of nanotechnology, especially those who desperately need it, rather than allow new technologies to be accessed only by the wealthy. Let's encourage individuals, corporations, scientists, and governments to lead the commitment to truly improve the world, not just our own little corner. With nanotech, we can enhance human flourishing, reinventing ourselves and the world. This, then, is a rare opportunity to do some soul-searching and to think about the kind of world we want to create for ourselves and our children. Then we need to get started on making that happen. That was Dr. Patrick Lynn, director of the Nanoethics Group. And now it's time to play Nano News or Nano Nonsense. Hi, I'm Karen Schmidt. Today playing the Nano News or Nano Nonsense quiz with us is Brittany Grayson. She's a grad student at UC Santa Cruz in the Science Communication Program. And Brittany's taking a break from classes and her writing internship to test her nanotechnology knowledge. Welcome, Brittany. Hi, it's good to be here. So tell me a little bit about what you're interested in writing about. What, what areas of science do you like? My background's in ecology, um, but I've always been interested by, by the geosciences and the atmospheric sciences as well. Oh. Do you know anything about nanotechnology? No, not really. So, Brittany, the way this works is I'll read you a series of three news stories, and two of them are true, but one is complete garbage. All right. So your job is to guess which one is nonsense. So you ready? I think so. Okay. Our first story is squishy robots. Nanotechnology is being harnessed to make the next generation of robots. No, these aren't the infamous nanobots from science fiction, but rather a new kind of regular-sized robots, squishy ones. Most robots are made of pretty hard stuff, such as metal and plastic, but those don't bend or flex. Now, if they were soft and elastic, they'd be able to crawl, climb, and maneuver like real animals can. And yet you could still precisely control them. A new project aims to build flexible robots out of materials that mimic those found in nature, but are engineered using nanotechnology. Wow, see, that gives me an image of a robot made out of a gym mat. 
<laughs> a gym mat. Okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's listen to the second story. Okay. This one is called A Nano Barcode for Fluffy. So, do you have any pets? I have a dog named Lily. Oh, okay. Well, then this could be a nano barcode for Lily. Technology for tiny ID tags took another leap forward in January when scientists unveiled an implantable chip that uses nanotechnology. It's just 10 nanometers across, and it's made of just a few hundred atoms. The chip is a simple but extremely tiny working computer that uses carbon nanotubes in its circuitry. That nanocircuitry sends out an identifying signal that can be read by a specialized scanner, much like a barcode scanner. Okay. Lily has a chip, but I don't think it's 10 nanometers. (laughs) Now, because these chips are so small, millions of them can be implanted with a single syringe. Their sheer numbers make the tag signals easier to detect and harder to lose. They may eventually be used to identify products in inventory or pets or possibly even children or criminals. Children? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd put a chip in my child. But... <laughs> and the last story, number three, intravenous nano curry. So have you been craving the health benefits of curry, Brittany? I don't know what the health benefits of curry are. <laughs> Turmeric, the spice that gives curry its yellow color, has been found to prevent cancer and lower blood cholesterol, among other things. Now, researchers in India have used nanotechnology to enhance the medicinal effects of this spice. The key was to make a form of turmeric that's easier for the body to absorb than the spoonfuls of spice that you get at your grocery store. Now, you could swallow a nano-turmeric capsule, or you could get your curry fix more directly by having it injected intravenously. These new drug delivery systems are currently undergoing animal trials, and human trials are next. I wonder if they're considering doing the same thing with caffeine. Yeah, that might be useful. Okay, so before you make your guess, Brittany, let's review the three stories that we've heard. Number one, using nanotechnology to build squishy robots. Number two, a nano barcode for Fluffy or for Lily. And number three, spicing up your life with nano turmeric. Which one do you think is nonsense? I'm going to go with the squishy robots, because that one just has the most ludicrous image in my head. The other two seem rather plausible. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at all the stories and find out if you were right. Well, number one, the story about squishy robots is actually nano news. Wow! Okay. <laughs> so the researchers working on this are at Tufts University. They envision that soft-bodied robots would be useful in situations where it would be dangerous for humans, such as navigating through a disaster site or doing maintenance and repairs on equipment in space. The flexible robots might also be maneuvered inside a patient during surgery or used as the fingers for a surgeon operating remotely. Wow. The materials being developed for this project really are state-of-the-art, not gym mats. (laughs) (laughs) One of them uses silicon nanostructures tacked onto bioengineered spider silk. Spider silk? Mm Mm-hmm. How do they get the spider silk? <laughs> it's bioengineered. Okay. <laughs> All right. So and number two is the intravenous nano curry, as you guessed, is also for real. The problem with turmeric has been that it's not very soluble, which keeps the body from absorbing it well. Researchers at Delhi University, they haven't released all their details yet, but their new nano-enhanced turmeric is designed to be more soluble, and that makes a little spice go a long way. 
They say consuming just 5 to 10 grams of the nanoturmeric is enough to provide a whole week's worth of health benefits, which is less than half the recommended dose of the usual stuff. Wow. So that leaves our second story. The nano barcode for Lily, that one was nonsense. Really? See, I thought that one was the plausible one. (laughs) Well, here's the reason why you probably thought it sounded possible. Um, We've had scannable tags for inventory in stores and also for pets for several years. And wild animals like salmon. Mm -hmm. And those are called radio frequency ID tags or RFID. And these are like sophisticated barcodes that can be sensed many meters away. Now, right now, those are micro-sized chips, mm-hmm. which is a thousand times larger than objects at the nanoscale, and they use conventional circuitry. That's probably small enough, but eventually, parts of the chips may be fabricated using nanotechnology, which will make them cheaper and smaller, probably. Cheaper? Really? Yeah, but nobody has really made a nano-sized RFID tag, at least not yet. So, thanks for playing our quiz, Brittany, and good luck with your science writing. Thank you, Karen. Today's show was written and produced by Stephanie Chastine and Karen Schmidt for the Exploratorium and the Nanoscale Informal Science Education Network. We are supported by the National Science Foundation. You can find us on the web at www.nisnet.org slash podcasts. That's N-I-S-E-N-E-T dot org slash podcasts. Or email us at smalltalk at exploratorium.edu. Please call us with your comments and questions at 1-888-781-3202. All music is licensed under the Creative Commons. You've heard My Name is Jeff by Four Stones and you're listening to Revolve by His Boy Elroy. You've been listening to Small Talk. Join us next month for more conversations about nanotechnology.